You know, two words that have been with me now for a few years, ignorance and arrogance. And it was a warning that I heard first from Mike Bickle. And it had to do with the Gentile church coming into a, a relationship with the Jewish roots of our faith. And, and when he talked about it, he said, there are two things in the body of Christ now. There's ignorance and arrogance. And he said, I sincerely hope that for the most part it's ignorance. And so when you speak, Kevin, I'm, I'm touched at many levels about Actually, I want to start not there with Gentile Jewish relationships, but with my 30 years in an independent, charismatic church, Hope Chapel, which you all know, a very lovely church on many, many levels. But independent charismatics are almost the youngest of all the chain of church groupings in history, 40, 50 years old only, with very little connection to church history, very little interest in it, um, but a great focus on the new thing God is doing, the new wineskin. That's where my heart is so wounded when you talk. It's like a child who has no connection to the importance of their parent faith traditions. So let me tell you what that would be like for me as a, you know, I grew up Catholic, so I have a bit of a dual citizenship here. And I could speak about things from a Catholic perspective, but since I've spent these 30 years in, at Hope Chapel, I'll talk about what it's like as an independent charismatic. If, if, if I were to turn my heart backward to the faith traditions that came before me, to the roots, I, I would first look to Pentecostalism and, and there is a great disconnect between Charismatics and Pentecostals. I feel it. We basically want to avoid their excesses with no connection to the, the blessed outpouring of God at Azusa Street, which ever breathed Charismatics into possibility, which ever did. We, and I can feel that in my spirit. I've heard Father Peter talk about it, and I instantly realize that is right. I do not feel a kinship you know, in that direction. Rather, I want to avoid what I think are excesses. And if I turned my heart to Pentecostalism, from there, Pentecostalism grew out of a, out of a turn of the century, radical wing of the holiness movement. That's an evangelical strain that came from John Wesley and Methodism. So I go Pentecostalism to a holiness movement to John Wesley, as a Methodist, but John Wesley was the son of an Anglican rector and an Anglican priest himself. So his tradition comes from Anglicanism, and from Anglicanism and any of the Protestant Reformation movements, we all turn our hearts to Catholicism, and we grab the, the Eastern wing of the Catholic Church, which is the Orthodox, and then, we all turn to the Jewish roots of our faith. And as an independent charismatic, I know next to nothing until Father Peter about Pentecostalism, a little bit about the holiness movement, but not a lot about that. <laughs> Something about evangelicalism because we osmose it as independent charismatics, but not a lot about it roots, very little about Anglicanism. 
I know something about Catholicism because I grew up in it. And, and until recently, not much about the Jewish roots of our faith either. So I'm just saying that there's, a, there's great giftedness in, in independent charismatics, but a kind of a blindness like the dragnet thing you showed, Kevin, if we're not careful. Was that us up there? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think. <laughs> that could really be us. So, so that's, it's a sadness to me about that. And just to, one, one quick thing about Pentecostalism. If, if, if we were to look back at that, if we really were as, as, as non-denominational charismatics to look at how, what was the origin of, of our existence, we would recover something that I think we have lost largely. Independent charismatics, I think, largely have lost this. While they are doing many good things, I, I don't dispute that. But there were two impetuses at the origin of this Azusa Street outpouring. An amazing thing that we don't talk about enough, I think. But there were two main inspirations. One was that this was an out, a blast of the Holy Spirit which was to go to all the church families throughout the earth, every denomination. And in that sense, it would unify. It was for everybody. It was to cross church lines and go to everybody. And it was held very loosely by, by the leaders of the first leaders of the Pentecostal movement. So that's the first thing. It was for unity for all church groups. And the second thing was that it was to finish the work on earth to prepare for the second coming of the Lord. Unity and a focus on the second coming of the Lord. And I think independent charismatics do not carry that forward. We've lost that. We've gone, we've gone forward without that. And if we were to recover it, then we could ask God together, what did you mean by this outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Has it been accomplished? Where have we succeeded and where have we failed? But if we keep reinventing, doing a new thing, looking at a new wineskin, and aren't connected with the big picture reasons, then even the gifts in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit begin to take a kind of a, a me focus. At Hope Chapel, I was always involved with that group of people who wanted more of the Holy Spirit. We wanted the church service to be interrupted by the Holy Spirit. Right. We wanted a word of prophecy, and we wanted the preaching to stop, and we wanted to follow the prophetic word of the Lord. And that's a good thing. But if that becomes the whole focus, then we become more and more on the new thing today, and we've forgotten why God gave the gift in the first place. And so from there, I... I I don't want to go into the whole story of how I, as an independent charismatic, came into a deep correction from the Lord about my Catholic roots, though, though that, that's a beautiful story to me for which I'm, I'm very grateful. I actually want to talk a little bit about something Amy said, because I recognize, at least in my part of the church world, that, that, that we we have to think about this thing of turning, turning our hearts to the Catholic Church as Protestants. We have to think about what is the best thing that we can possibly do as Protestants for Catholics. It's not a, out of a meanness, I don't think. I think it's out of an attachment to what is the best thing God wants for them. And isn't it probably to be converted out of that into something better? So if I have a neighbor who's a Catholic practicing just maybe nominally, 
up until just t five, ten years ago, my greatest thought of love for them would be to somehow influence them to come to my church. Because that's where I thought life was. And it's not that I'm being mean to them, actually the opposite. It's being responsible as a servant of God to give them the best gift I could give them, something better than what they have. So there's a dilemma. I, I feel it clearly in, in the Protestant world. What does God want for us as later reformed people vis-a-vis -vis the Catholics? And, and so I've thought about it quite a bit. Is it that, so, so it takes me to the question of how, how does God deal with his own people who have become unresponsive, disobedient, or outright sinful? What is God's heart? What is his plan? I can, I can sense that, that, that in many corners the idea is, comes from the scripture that says, I think it's repeated in 2 Corinthians. Obviously it comes from the Old Testament. But, it's, but it says, come out from among them the unclean thing. Touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. Are you familiar with that? Yes. So, so, so I feel like that's, that, that's what's happened. When the reformers left the Catholic Church, whether it was there at the beginning, that's what set in. What set in their hearts strong, stronger than any other message was, come out from among the unclean ones and join us. Leave them. Come where there's life. That surely was the, the impetus behind the Pentecostals. Not at the beginning, like I said. At the beginning, they went throughout the whole world to give this gift to anyone who would receive it. But very sadly, they were not received. They were denigrated, made fun of. They, they, were, they were called a bunch of country bumpkins, uneducated, racially mixed. The historic churches, the established churches, completely rejected them and denigrated them. And after a while, like Amy said, that dishonoring causes you to dishonor back. So they circled their wagons. They became a denomination when they, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much parroting Father Peter, but I deeply believe he's right. They became a denomination. They had to figure out, we're gonna have church rules and we're gonna make doctrine, when that was never what the impetus from God was. But when they were so rejected, they circled their wagons and became their own thing. And they thought for the first 50 years of their existence, everybody in those lifeless historic churches need to come out of there and join us. And, and, and really, there were a couple of strong prophets who stood up in the middle of that. Have you ever heard of Smith Wigglesworth? Yes. Have you ever heard of David Duplessis? Okay, mm -hmm. so I didn't even know David Duplessis. This is, he's a major hero of mine now. But Smith Wigglesworth came from England and took David Duplessis in South Africa and took him by the collar and stood him up against the wall and said, I have a word from the Lord for you, young man. He was about 30 years old. He was a Pentecostal in South Africa. He was the secretary of their grouping. And he said, thus says the Lord, God is going to send a charismatic burst of energy to the historic churches, Catholic, Lutheran, Anglican, like nothing that you've seen yet. It's going to infuse them with power and go forward greater than anything we've experienced, and God is going to use you in it. And it shook his life, because he too was thinking, 
My greatest service to these people is to get them out of those dead work churches into the place of life. And this changed his trajectory. And he began to preach it. And he was disbarred from his Pentecostal denomination. I don't remember if it was Assemblies of God or something else. He was kicked out of their leadership because he moved into the Catholic world. He preached that God was going to bring this, and, it, and God did. God brought it to Dennis Bennett, an Episcopal, in, in the late 1950s, early 1960s. And then right around the time of Vatican II, this charismatic outpouring swept through the Catholic Church. Okay, so I want to go back to, so, so, is the, so I think the model of come out from among them, the unclean people still exists. But I want to counter it with what I think is the model that God wants us to have by just reading one verse of scripture from Paul in Romans 9. So it's... So I, I, I want to say that Paul, maybe, maybe we should use Paul as our model for how God wants us to look back at root traditions that came before us, even if we can find error in them, even if they persecuted us. Okay? So Paul was greatly persecuted by his own Jewish brothers and sisters. Brothers, I guess I would say. That's the thing we need to remember. So in Acts 9 through 24, I'm just going to mention some of the ways he was persecuted. They plotted to kill him in Damascus, contradicted and blasphemed him out of envy. They stirred up devout, honorable Jews against him and stirred up Gentiles against him. They came from other cities after him to unteach the things he had just taught. They gathered lowlifes, people they were not really allowed to associate with, to go to the house where Paul was saying to drag him out to, to an angry crowd. They expelled him from cities. They beat him, stoned him, and left him for dead. In Jerusalem, they dragged him from the temple in order to incite the Romans to murder him. And they influenced the Romans to keep him imprisoned for four years and tried to persuade Rome to, to kill him. So, so here's a man persecuted and dishonored, like Amy was saying. You could expect that he would completely disown the Jewish race, completely disown them, and press into this new thing that God had given him, and given many of the other Jews, too. There was a, there was a cadre of them, of course. He had many reasons to be bitter against them and curse them. But really, quite amazingly, he writes in Romans 9 through 11 about them. I'll just read one piece of scripture. But listen to it. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 9. I tell the truth in Messiah. I do not lie. My conscience, conscience assuring me in the Holy Spirit. I'll just say that again. Because it's four times underlining and repeating the same thing. Truth in the Lord. I do not lie. My conscience, conscience attests to it in the Holy Spirit that my sorrow is great and my anguish unending. For I would pray that I myself were cursed and cut off from the Lord for the sake of my people, my own flesh and blood who are Israelites. I think I've heard, maybe you know, Rose, that the word used there in the Greek is anathema, completely removed from the presence of the Lord. That's like saying, I give up heaven, I go to hell. 
for the sake of my people who persecuted me, following me around, persecuting me. I mean, that's over the top. Yeah. That is completely over the top. And I, and I heard uh, a YWAM teacher teach this verse, and it shocked me. And he taught it completely in the context of this was Paul's love for unbelievers. And that is true. This is a great love for unbelievers. But it was nowhere within the context of this is Paul's love for Israel, a people who now have a blindness over them. So if that's the model, then I, as an independent charismatic, can certainly look back at my Catholic roots with a whole new point of view to, 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 to finally ask God to show me the things that, that, that Paul knew. Because, because Paul goes on to say, to them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from them, according to the flesh, came Jesus, who is over all God blessed forever. So I can look back at my Catholic roots and say, to them belong. Mm -hmm. To them belong St. Francis of Assisi. He's a great hero of mine. He's a great hero of everybody's, isn't he? To them belong Mother Teresa. You know, and we could go on and on and on and on and on. So I think we can reconnect and honor our root traditions. We can ask for revelation about their strengths. This was a great gift that has come to me and has helped me balance some of the strengths slash weaknesses in my 30 years as an independent charismatic. I'll give you one example. The Catholic strength of mystery, of allowing some things to remain in mystery, greatly balances what I think is a strong penchant in the evangelical world for parsing everything out, explaining everything through scripture, finding an explanation for everything, it's just in scripture, find it. And so you, you end up explaining, stretching some explanations and making things say what they probably don't say in order to explain, and especially in prophetic senses, and especially in the second coming of the Lord, which is a real gift that our community has been given. And I don't ever want us to lose it. Even if other people aren't talking about it a lot, we were given an impartation to lift up this great goal, which is the second coming of the Lord. When we lift it up, though, and we want to hear more about it, we can hear a lot of teachers talking about what's going to happen in what order. And, 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 and recovering something of the great gift of Catholic mystery has helped me know when to say no to that, when to accept what I think is good and to say no to too much of it. Very important for prophetic people who are called to this kind of thing. But you said something that sticks with me as a very important thing to remember. It may have been when Pope Benedict stepped down, and there was some reaction about that from someone you, in, in, you may have gotten an email or something. I can't quite remember how, how, how it happened. But somebody was maybe talking about, again, going back to that old idea that one of the popes would be the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. Why would Benedict step down? What's going on in Rome? Something's cooking there, that kind of thing. And you said, even if one of the popes turned out to be the Antichrist, that would not negate the great blessing of the Catholic Church through the ages. Now, I, I want you just to think about that a little bit. 
That would be the pinnacle, the pinnacle of the demise of the Catholic Church for many people. I hate to use the Catholic Church as an example, but I'm just going to because people have said that. I heard that when I, when I became sort of born again from a Catholic upbringing. That the, I don't know if born again is the right word. It's probably the wrong word, but in any case. Even if that were to happen, even if the, the evil one would infiltrate this great blessing of the Catholic Church to such a degree, that would not negate the centuries of blessing that, that, that we have drunk from. So, so just think about that a little bit. And then, I should end quickly. So all of that then helps us as Gentiles turn to our Jewish roots. And I'll read one quote from Father Peter to end. What are all the ways that turning to our Jew what are the ways that turning to our Jewish roots could enrich us and bless us? This is the whole point of Toward Jerusalem too, this movement in Dallas. One of the main ways that Father Peter sees is we recover the Jewish sources, the Jewish understanding of Scripture. So the Jewish look at the New Testament really helps us to understand some background that we don't have. Because the early church was Jewish only, then Jew and Gentile, then mostly Gentile, as the Gentiles received the gospel more quickly than the Jews did. And by the fourth century, in the Council of Ephesus, there were decisions made because Constantine became a believer and was a Holy Roman Emperor, he said, one empire, one church. We're going to have a blanket rule. No more Jewish expression. We're going to have one set of dates. He imposed all those dates for the resurrection of Jesus. They were Gentile-inspired dates. And basically they said, stop. Jewish people stop looking, acting, behaving in a Jewish way. Stop eating kosher, stop keeping a Jewish household, stop wearing Jewish things, stop keeping Jewish feasts, stop it. So the Jewish expression of the early church went away. What might we have lost because of that? Is a question that it would be so good if all of us as Gentiles would ask. Here's one of Father Peter's answers. Rediscovering the Jewish origins has already blessed ecumenical dialogue in some places. For instance, the Eucharist. The discussion at the time of the Reformation went like this. Protestants said it's memorial, not sacrifice. Catholics said it's sacrifice. So the idea of memorial faded from the scene. It evidently was there in, 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 in Catholic um, theology to some degree. But in those arguments, there was little understanding of the Jewish background. Now a big breakthrough has happened, at least at the theological level, in the return to the Jewish sources. Jews have a very strong notion of memorial. Like at Passover, where it's a reliving of the experience of Exodus, so that the Christian understanding do this in memory of me, can be taken as a memorial in the power of the Holy Spirit that makes present in a mysterious way the original event. And this understanding cuts straight through the centuries of disputation and polemic. 
and it comes from a recovering the Jewish sources. Many other examples like that and many unanswered questions yet that I think our generation and especially the generation after my age group can ask and get answers from in an effort to honor the church traditions that came before us.